I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. It's finally summer, and for me this is marked by alstroemerias. There's an orange one that is very, very vigorous in my garden and very, very bright. But the one that's really shining this year is called Peaches and Cream, which as you might guess is pink and creamy. And it's looking really, really good. Alstroemerias are great plants. They're rather expensive to buy, but they last for years. And it's a plant that I'm going to grow a few more of, including in containers, because it's a bit of a toughie as well. I didn't think it would come through the winter, but I've been agreeably surprised. But of course, it's not just Alstroemerias that's caught my eye. It's peak summer. A time when many of our flowers are flourishing, adorning our gardens with bright colours and sweet, rich fragrances. We've gone from nurturing our gardens to flipping the switch, sitting back and letting them fill us with joy. It's a happy time and we want to celebrate that. So this week, we're taking a jaunt through a summer patch, exploring some of our favourite jewels of the season. We're starting off with Ben Dark, author, gardener and a good friend of the show, He's back to tell us about a garden favourite, Verbena benariensis. When you see it, you are not just getting the beauty of the flower, but you're getting almost their own backdrop, that dark, dark, almost light-absorbing flower head with the shining metallic points of light. It really is a very effective flower. Before we check in with writer and lily lover, Naomi Slade, to pick her brains on the best cultivars. I like the whopping great ones, that sense of being dwarfed by a plant, that overwhelming wonder. Plants like African Queen, which is a big, tall, reliable one. It's trumpet-shaped. It's got sort of a, like, almost purpley bronze to the back of the petal. And finally, we're travelling to Sir Harold Hillier Gardens to hear all about the flowering dogwoods they grow. The thing I love about the dogwoods is diversity that there is so many different types. And there are also those that are almost herbaceous as well. So for Cornus canadensis, which is a ground cover plant. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. In the Grove and Nature Odyssey in 19 and a half front gardens, Ben Dark writes, Verbena benariensis is our glue, the plant we all agree on. And we had to know why. So we called up Ben to elaborate and tell us how best we can utilise the flower in our gardens. I think that a plant that grows high at the front of a border is wonderful. It frames the view for the rest of the space. It adds some depth to even the smallest of spaces. And my favourite plant to use for this is 
Babina bonariensis because it's beautiful, it's tall, it holds itself up and doesn't collapse onto the grass and you can look through it and every single part of the garden is best when viewed through a little floating cloud of Babina bonariensis butterfly flowers. Verbena benariensis grows tall and strong on fairly distinctive, rough, square-shaped stems. And it is a terminal flowerer. Terminal flowerer not meaning flowering itself to death in this instance, but it flowers at the very end of its stems. These beautiful flower heads with dark, dark flower buds and then little, almost metallic-y blue mauve flowers opening in sequence over the course of the late summer. So that when you see it, you are not just getting the beauty of the flower, but you're getting almost their own backdrop, that dark, dark, almost light absorbing flower head with the shining metallic points of light. It really is a very effective flower. Verbena bonariensis comes from Argentina. The clue is in the name. Bonariensis means of Buenos Aires and it has been grown in Europe for a long time, well over a century, but came to prominence in the prairie plantings of the late 90s and the 2000s, when it almost was ubiquitous, floating above the, the grasses, the, the steepers of that, that kind of movement, flowering alongside the echinaceas and rubecchias. But it really came to be held dear to gardeners then because when so many of those grasses would end up flattened by the English climate in mats of stems on the ground, the verbena would remain tall and stately and unperturbed by the weather, a, a real doer of a plant. My first meaningful encounter with verbena bonariensis was when I was in my first job as a professional gardener working for an oligarch up on the edge of Hampstead Heath. Most of the planting we did was entirely tasteless. It was, let's throw money at this garden and make it look expensive. But one of my colleagues put in the most beautiful scheme of pollarded eucalyptus with its glaucous grey leaves, roses, and then verbena bonariensis to drift as a cloud above the whole thing. And it was a revelation. It was wild planting, prairie planting, but made to suit the tastes of someone whose idea of a good garden was the window box outside the Savoy. And that showed me that Verbena benariensis is really one of the most versatile plants we have in our gardener's toolbox. In work as a professional gardener, there's often a conflict between maybe a client who wants things to look gardened, to look neat and tended, and a gardener who tends to be a, a woollier, more romantic type, who wants things to look slightly natural, slightly unkempt, slightly, in the words of Robin Lane Fox, as if the gardener died six weeks ago. And Verbena bonariensis is the perfect plant for marrying these two styles because there is something of the rogue about it. It moves around, it waves itself in the air, but it never looks weedy or out of place. You can use it at the front of the border, or you can use it at the back in a height-ranked border. You can set it flowering above the tropical display of, of dahlia and canna, or you can put it inside a low parterre of box or yew, where it will erupt as this great 
big purple fireworks display. It's a remarkable effect when you have a geometric pattern below with this huge unstructured metallic cloud above. It is the ultimate unifier of gardening styles and tastes. In the last place I worked, we had a heavy tropical area. It was bananas, musas, and it was dahlias and large-leafed canna varieties. And it was all looking slightly too lush and leafy. So we let verbena run wild, let it seed where it would. And it added a much-needed toughness. The leaves, before the flower came out, were sort of corrugated alligator skin. And the flowers above added an extra layer, an extra bit of movement that is sometimes lacking in a tropical garden. They are gardens that always look stately, but unperturbed by the weather. The verbena would move in the wind and add a little bit of romance to the place. Verbena benariensis is a fairly easy grower. It likes a slightly dry soil and nothing too rich, certainly no additional fertilizers, for it has a tendency to rank growth. It has a tendency to chuck a load into the leaves. And if you're ever going to see a verbena battered by the weather, it's one that has been overfed and has become slightly flabby. So grow it fairly hard. The second thing with verbena is not to deadhead. It doesn't produce vastly more flowers if you deadhead and it has such a long natural flowering season anyway it will be going through from july august september so there's no need to hack about and when you leave the flower heads on the plant you get two benefits firstly you get that wonderful winter structure those little pom-poms held up for a bit of silhouette and secondly you get seedlings verbena is a great seeder and it is a plant that, if it likes the conditions, will be appearing in all sorts of unexpected and quite exciting places. So definitely no deadheading. As we head towards midsummer and Verbena's first flowering, I would like gardeners to remember that Verbena benariensis really is the salt in horticulture's cuisine. If you feel your garden is lacking something but you're not quite sure what it is do what you do to your soup chuck a load of salt in chuck a load of verbena in it's going to improve things and make it all feel that more flavorsome thanks to ben be sure to check out his book the grove a nature odyssey in 19 and a half front gardens to get the inside scoop on our garden favorites Verbena benariensis is a tall, majestic plant that seems to go with almost anything. As Ben says, it's our horticultural salt. But of course, it's not alone in its versatility. Another tall, summer-blooming flower that comes to mind is the lily. The Lilium genus is so diverse you can almost guarantee there is something for every garden. So for our next story, we've decided to delve into all things lilies with gardening expert and author Naomi Slade. For me, lilies are one of those flowers that I've always known. My uncle and my grandmother used to grow them when I was very small. And they're intense, the colours are rich, and they're, they're very, very detailed. 
and they sort of fascinated me in the same way as tulips did. When you're very small and you're looking at a big flower, it sort of grabs you and it sort of sucks you in. They're just captivating. They're absolutely captivating. They are iconic. They mean so many things to so many different people in so many ways. Lilies have been cultivated and prized for absolute aeons. They've been sort of found in friezes in Minoan culture on Crete. There's the lily prince who's sort of seen wearing them in his hat. So the very, very earliest signs of lilies are in friezes, they're in, in art. But then it got adopted as a, a symbol of purity, of religion. You've got Lilium longiflorum, which are the Easter lilies, the Madonna lilies, Lilium candidum. There's one rather creepy example in art of where Jesus is nailed to a cross made of lilies and a couple of situations where you see Angel Gabriel presenting the Virgin Mary with lilies in order to signify the impending birth of Jesus. It's an iconic art piece. And then, you know, gardeners will grow anything. And if you if you hybridise it and make them new and exciting, then they'll grow even more of them. So there's the kind of performative horticulture element of lilies as well, and they do lend themselves to that. Lilies are a genus of bulbous perennials, that's lilium, and they're in the family Liliaceae, so they're quite closely related to other plants like Fritillaria and Cardiocrinum. And they originated in the northern hemisphere, across which they're quite widely spread. And one of the exciting things about lilies, actually, is that they arose in, in Asia in the very, very distant past, well before humanity was a twinkle in evolution's eye. And this sort of origin plant grew and proliferated, but the tectonic forces pushed the mountains ever higher and divided the populations. So they started to evolve separately. And then the plates in the earth split. So lilies are one of those plants which is found to a great extent in Asia, so China and Japan, the Himalayas. But also there's populations in North America, and there are quite a lot of plants like that, like hydrangeas, magnolias, which have these two hot spots. And then there's also a number of them, like Lilium chalcedonicum, that sort of creep into Eastern Europe. And so lilies is this very ancient group of plants. They're very, very diverse because they're widespread. So as a result, because they, there are high ones and there are low ones and there are hot ones and there are cooler ones, they are very, very adaptable as a garden plant. I like Lilium henryi, which is a really hot, brilliant orange plant. I like the wild types best. There are all sorts of new lilies being bred, things like rose lilies, which are highly double and don't have any pollen on, which is great if you don't want pollen stains on your clothes. But I do like the species lilies, so Lilium henryi is a favourite of mine, which has bright orange petals, they're reflex, and they're covered in sort of fleshy papillae, which are sort of protrusions, sort of bubbles as well. It's nice and tall, and it was found in a gorge off the Yangtze River, so it's one of the ones that likes limey soil. And pH is a thing for lilies. You have to make sure that you've got the right one for your soil. I also like the martagon types, which I find very, very flexible. So I grow them in Wales, where they like relatively moist, dappled shade. They're very variable, so you get a whole range of different colours, sort of from purples to sort of bronzes. And I've got one which is of the sort of Turk's cat type, a beautiful sort of dark 
sort of maroon ruby with a bit of sort of deep orange in there as well called Claude Shride. And that does very well for me in a pot, so well that in a couple of weeks' time, I'm actually going to have to divide it and plant it out and dot it around in the soil and refresh the compost to see if it'll grow better. And of other lilies I've grown, I like the whopping great ones, that sense of being dwarfed by a plant, that overwhelming wonder. Plants like African Queen, which is a big, tall, reliable one. It's trumpet-shaped. It's got sort of a, like an almost purpley bronze at the back of the petals, and that one's really striking, so I do like that one too. Lilies are quite complicated. They have been divided and classified quite intensively. So there are nine divisions, and then there are a string of letters after them which tell you whether the flower is downward facing, whether it's outward facing, and so on and so forth. And the main purpose of this is to indicate the parentage of the lilies and therefore where they'd like to grow. So whether they will tolerate alkaline conditions or insist on acid conditions, whether they're likely to be scented, and broadly the shape of the flower, whether it's going to be trumpet-like or reflexed or bowl-shaped. So all those sorts of things. So when you're choosing lilies, taking a look at your um, your soil pH and the shape of the thing is, is kind of key. And then after that, don't worry too much about the classification of lilies. Essentially, they like the heads in the sun and their feet in the shade a little bit like clematis do, with the exception of Lilium candidum, which likes shallow planting and good drainage. If you're going to grow lilies in the border, it's a good idea to mix them with other plants. Lilies tend to be quite tall, so planting them alongside geums or flocks or through low shrubs will give them a little bit of support, a little bit of context. And if the lily beetles do destroy the leaves, then it will mask that as well. But also it'll give them some support. So grow the tall ones as the back of the border plant. You can use turkscap types through the border and just make it all a lovely cottagey arrangement. They're fascinating, they're glorious, the colours are really, really intense. And they're so diverse, there really is a lily for all, all tastes. You can have the scented one, you can have not scented ones, you can have all sorts of cool shapes. They're as elegant and as flashy and as blousy and as ostentatious and as subtle as you could possibly hope to do. So this is the summer, we should all go out and find our ultimate lily for ourselves. That was Naomi Slade. If you want more lily love, do check out Naomi's monograph on the subject. And additionally, be sure to check out the Garden magazine. Naomi published an article all about the results of the RHS lily trial for the July issue. If you're an RHS member, you can also see this article on our popular new app called simply The Garden. Speaking of the RHS lily trial, this took place at Wisley a few years ago and I remember it very well because I'm a great lily enthusiast. There were many, many cultivars and a few of them caught my eye. There was the Lilium martigan, of course, and it's got a kind of turk-capped flower, which means that the flower droops and the, the corners curl back up. And the other one, which is also a turk's cap but caught my eye, was Fusion. It's got orange recurved flowers, very like the Lilium henryi that Naomi spoke of, but with more vigour. I like the look of that a lot. But a word of warning, because so many lilies are bred, it can be hard to find the cultivars you're looking for. So often you have to go for the latest one that has the look that you want.
The good news is that because new ones are bred all the time and they're bred to be cheap and easy to propagate, they don't usually cost too much. If you're a beginner growing lilies, I recommend going for the tree lilies. They're not trees, but they are very tall and vigorous lilies. They're widely sold at a modest price, and they guarantee good results of lovely trumpet-scented flowers. And now for our final story of the day, we're turning to flowering trees. Summer blooming dogwoods aren't a particularly common garden site here in the UK. They're far more popular in North America and Asia, but as our climate warms, it's becoming slightly easier to grow them. And as it turns out, they're in top form at the moment. So we decided to stop by Sir Harold Hillier Gardens, which holds a national collection of Cornus, and check in with their botanist, Barry Clark. The thing I love about the dogwoods is the diversity, that there is so many different types. And there are also those that are almost herbaceous as well. So you've got Cornus canadensis, which is a ground cover plant, same sort of flowers with the big white bracts, but you know, in a dwarf form that you can grow as, as ground cover. And up to massive trees, like, you know, the big flowering dogwoods that can be incredibly large trees. And I've been lucky enough to see them out in the wild too. So I've seen what we would call Cornus elliptica out in China as a, a massive tree. So yeah, I think it's definitely the diversity that really appeals to me. I think to, to most people, the flowering dogwood is seen as a white flowered plant, you know, beautiful flowers usually covering the shrub oil tree. And this is true, but of course, they're, they're not true flowers. Those white things that look like petals are actually bracts. And the flower is a ball of small yellow or green flowers in the centre of, of those bracts. And they, they are, yes, indeed, they are white, but you can get also those that are flash pink. And the majority of those that are white do fade to a sort of pink before they're finished. And after the flowering as well, of course, you've got the amazing fruits. They have strawberry-like fruits, which actually are edible as well, which people don't seem to realise. They've got massive pips in them, so they're not commercially available to eat, of course. But, you know, they still have a really amazing flavour, something between a pineapple and banana, you know, and I, th I find that fascinating as well. So the best sort of spot for a flowering dogwood is somewhere where it's going to get light, it's going to get good sun, but not strong direct light. Although they will do in full sun, they will grow in full sun, they seem to react better if they have a part shade condition. They still flower well, they'll still give you fruit well, they'll still give you great autumn colour, but they'll be sheltered from their flowers burning or even the leaves sometimes burning from a full sun position. So most of ours here in the Hillier Gardens do have some kind of shelter from full sun. They generally need quite a rich soil, quite a free draining soil, but also something that does retain some moisture, which sounds a little bit contradictory, but you don't want them to be sitting in water, but at the same time through the summertime and through the spring, they do need good water to give good flower and then eventually good fruiting. So they're not a plant that could be planted in a dry conditions, they're not a plant that responds well to, say, clay soils. They need a good neutral to acidic soil. If you're working towards alkaline soils, then that's not going to work for you because they really do not like alkaline soils that much. They'll sit there and do nothing. They won't necessarily go chlorotic, although they can do, but they just won't grow and perform. So you really need neutral to acidic for them. There are some really fantastic cultivars to grow. Of course, there are pink flowering varieties as well as there are white 
flowering varieties. But in fact, Wisley Queen is a really good cultivar. Several have variegated foliage. And although the flowers tend to sort of slightly disappear in the variegation, they have a really nice appearance and also, of course, a, a longer season of interest because of the variegation. So there is one called Cornuscusa summer fun, which is a beautiful variegated form. It's in fact probably, I shouldn't say this maybe, but it's probably the best variegated form. And it's also quite a compact tree. It's not too large. So it would suit the smaller garden or maybe even container culture. You know, growing these things in pots is possible. You just have to keep on top of the watering, but they, they will grow well in pots too. I have a couple of favourites of the flowering dogwoods, which I, I really love. I like things about them that are maybe slightly different. So there is one called Big Apple, for example. And uh, as the name would suggest, it has really beautiful flowers, the same as most of the others, but it has ginormous fruits that are, you know, like a small apple. So another aspect which is quite interesting. There is also Cornus Venus, and the flowers on it are absolutely massive. It's a hybrid cross between two species, and it's called L. Winnortonii, Cornus Venus. So it's, it's a pretty spectacular thing. The flowers are perhaps four times the size of the average flowering Cornus, so a really spectacular plant. So yeah, definitely a plant for most gardens that have, of course, the right soil types, I would say. And they kind of look after themselves. They don't really require much pruning. And the season of interest is long because of the fruits to follow the flowers. And then eventually autumn colour. I mean, that's something we haven't touched on, but they do have incredible autumn colour as well. Most of the Cornus cusas will have red, orange, yellow-toned autumn foliage, depending on the variety. One of my favourites is Cornus Cusa Moonbeam, which has a real wide range of colours in its autumn foliage before it falls. And it's, it's also not quite like some trees that drop their autumn leaves, which drop just like that. Uh, on the Cornus Cusas, they do retain them just a little bit longer, I would say. So it's quite a good season of autumn interest. So in a garden, you could probably use the lee of the, the Cornus cusas to protect other plants and to give shade. So, I mean, you could underplant it with shade-loving plants such as ferns or epimediums or anything that, you know, loves a bit of shade. And then over the top of them, of course, anything slightly bigger to give the Cornus cusa a little bit of shade. So maybe a larger tree, which gives dappled shade, maybe magnolias or something like that. Yeah, so lots of things with suit and partner Cornus Custis very well, I would say. Because we're in the season for the flowering dogwoods, now definitely go out and find a gardens like us, or us, do come and see us, which has a good Cornus collection because it is spot on the time to see them. Don't rush out and buy one now, I would say. I would wait until the autumn if you can, because you'll just have to look after it until the autumn when you can plant it. So you might want to wait just hold back, maybe take a piece of paper and a pen with you, write down the names of the ones you like, and then go out to nurseries later on in the year and see if you can find them or maybe even order them online. They're all sort of shapes and sizes too. Some are smaller than others. So it's a good idea to come and see them growing. Thanks, Barry. 
As Barry mentioned, this is the perfect time to find your favourite dogwood variety. You can plan a visit to Sir Harold Hillier Gardens and see their national collection using a link in our show notes. Well, that's about it for today. Before you go, a quick announcement. We're planning an allotment special for later in the summer and we need your help. If you want grow your own allotment advice or have a particular story you'd like to share about your allotment, please reach out. You can email us at podcast at rhs.org.uk. That's all for now. So from me, Guy Barter, goodbye and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.